When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. In Jurassic Park, John Williams and Steven Spielberg didn't give 1993 audiences a typical music score for a monster movie. While there are plenty of amazing scares in Jurassic Park, the score plays against type. It's emotional, bold, and almost sentimental. It's time to find out why. This is The Soundtrack Show. At the earliest drawings of the fractal curve, few clues to the underlying mathematical structure will be seen. Second iteration. With subsequent drawings of the fractal curve, sudden changes may appear. Dr. Ian Malcolm. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins. And on this episode, we're engineering a first look at the soundtrack for Jurassic Park a movie from 1993 directed by Steven Spielberg, our second Spielberg movie on the soundtrack show, with a score by John Williams, his third score that we've covered so far. Jurassic Park from 1993. Ah, 1993. The world was changing so fast in 93. In the 90s in general, cell phones weren't in wide use, neither was the internet. People didn't shop online, and there was certainly no social media, at least as we know it today. No podcasts, no YouTube, no streaming services. Movies were still on VHS, and people bought music on CD. Well, okay, I still buy CDs, but anyway. Home computers were changing so fast that you had to buy a new one almost every year if you wanted to run the latest operating system or video game. Speaking of operating systems, you still had to boot Windows through DOS commands. And if you had a Mac, well, you were sophisticated indeed. But that little monitor wasn't by today's standards. Heck, most people have a bigger monitor in their car dashboard than people had with their Macs in 1993. Let's give a snapshot of some bigger moments in the year. The Pentium processor was invented in 93. The VHS release of Disney's Aladdin sold 10.6 million copies in its first week. Two of the year's biggest quotes were, The truth is out there, from the TV show The X-Files, and Got Milk, from the California Milk Processor Board. 
Coachella was started when the band Pearl Jam boycotted Ticketmaster in 1993 for their high prices and played at the location during their Ticketmaster boycott tour. The first death row inmate was exonerated by DNA evidence in 93. Until 1993, women were banned from wearing pants on the floor of the U.S. Senate. And apartheid finally ended in South Africa. In 1993, total internet traffic amounted to approximately 100 terabytes for the year. As of June 2008, 15 years later, Cisco Systems estimated internet traffic at 160 terabytes per second. In other words, the amount of internet used per second in 08 exceeded all of the internet used in the entire year of 1993. The hot Christmas gifts that year were Commodore's Amiga CD32, the Atari Jaguar, Power Rangers action figures, 1850s Southern Belle Barbie, Barbie Batgirl gift set, Beanie Babies, and Magic the Gathering role-playing cards. The big movies of 1993 were Cliffhanger, Schindler's List, The Pelican Brief, In the Line of Fire, Indecent Proposal, Sleepless in Seattle, The Firm, The Fugitive, Mrs. Doubtfire, and, you guessed it, Jurassic Park. Ah, Jurassic Park. Yes, we asked you and you have spoken. Based on a recent social media poll, plus direct email feedback from you, we very easily learned that Jurassic Park was the movie that you really wanted covered on this show. And, coincidentally enough, I really want to talk about it, because like you, I love this movie's score. Many of you wrote in saying that this this was your life-changing movie, or film score, at a young age. And with good reason. The music is timeless. And today, we're going to discuss why. Why is the music in this movie so memorable? Let's just get this out of the way right now. We're going to discuss two big themes today. I think you know what they are. Here's the first one that we'll discuss. I call it the island theme. And here's the second one that we'll discuss. We'll call it the animal or the dinosaurs theme.
these themes so emotional? What is it about the main themes to Jurassic Park that have stayed with us for decades? Well, let's start with a little background. As most of you know, I'm sure, Jurassic Park the movie is based on a 1990 novel of the same name written by Michael Crichton, the same author who gave us The Andromeda Strain, Sphere, Congo, and even two TV series, ER, and then after Crichton's death, Westworld, a TV series iteration of a movie that Crichton himself directed in 1973. In fact, when Steven Spielberg was working with Crichton on resurrecting his old ER screenplay for a TV pilot, he asked him what he was working on in the world of books. Crichton answered. Michael Crichton and I were actually working on another project together, a screenplay. And I asked him, so what are you doing in the world of books? He said, oh, I'm writing this thing about dinosaurs and DNA. And my eyes got wide and suddenly I wanted to hear more and I coaxed it out of him until he told me basically the whole story. And so that's uh, how the whole thing began. And even before I had a screenplay, I began to storyboard the novel. I'd never done that before. I broke the novel down into scenes that I thought I might want to carry over into the motion picture version. The effort to make Jurassic Park, the novel, into a Spielberg-directed movie for Universal Pictures was born. So first, before we discuss more about the movie, let's talk about the novel. The novel of Jurassic Park doesn't pull any punches, in my opinion. It's violent often featuring human deaths at the hands of dinosaurs that are brutally descriptive. And two of our main characters, Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum in the movie, and wealthy entrepreneur John Hammond, played by the late Sir Richard Attenborough, do not survive the novel. Neither do other characters that don't appear in the movie but are in the book, including publicist Ed Regis. The novel's criticism of genetic engineering, of ungoverned and broad genetic advances— of chaos theory and other theories that limit scientific answers and certainly give no ethical or moral guidance are explored thoroughly in the book. The hubris of humankind plays out in a theme park slash zoo gone awry as once extinct predators take over and clash with human beings for the first time in Earth's history. John Hammond and InGen's ability to control the awesome force of the dinosaurs is proven to be totally inadequate as was predicted by Dr. Malcolm all throughout the book, even before he sets foot on the island. And we as readers are witness to how his accurate predictions play out. He sees the flaws in the system a mile away, and even suspects cover-ups, as Hammond and InGen, his company, are putting greed in front of safety. Here's an example. Before the chaos in the book begins, our characters are getting a tour of the facilities, and they watch these fenced-in velociraptors try and attack them through an electrified fence. We learn that they, the raptors, already identified humans as food. In the following excerpt, we get a clue that this park is barely maintaining control, and our scientist characters, mathematician Dr. Ian Malcolm, paleontologist Dr. Alan Grant, and paleobotanist Dr. Ellie Sattler know it. Here's a quote from the novel Jurassic Park. Quote, And were the dinosaurs in fact attacking us? Yes. They would kill us and eat us if they could, Malcolm said. I think so. The reason I ask, Malcolm said, 
is that I'm told large predators, such as lions and tigers, are not born man-eaters. Isn't that true? These animals must learn somewhere along the way that human beings are easy to kill. Only afterward do they become man-killers. Yes, I believe that's true, Grant said. Well, these dinosaurs must be even more reluctant than lions and tigers. After all, they come from a time before human beings or even large mammals existed at all. God knows what they think when they see us. So, I wonder, have they learned somewhere along the line that humans are easy to kill? The group fell silent as they walked. In any case, Malcolm said, I shall be extremely interested to see the control room now. End quote. We as readers know that what they're talking about with the raptors is actually true, as the publicist Ed Regis brought a mauled body to the Costa Rican mainland after a raptor attack at the very beginning of the book. Our scientists have begun to realize that Jurassic Park isn't all that it seems. And from there, the park's control just goes downhill. Ultimately, the island is sabotaged for monetary gain by computer control systems designer Dennis Nedry, played by Wayne Knight of Seinfeld fame in the movie. And when he's killed by a Dilophosaurus or two, they never regain control of the park. All prehistoric hell breaks loose. Like I said, the world was changing fast in the early 90s, and this book is themed as a cautionary tale of those technological changes. Many of these cautionary themes do survive in the movie, and they work extremely well. I mean, it's part of what makes the movie so fascinating. In fact, the first screenplay was written by Crichton himself, but after a couple more drafts and much discussion, ultimately screenwriter David Kep finished the shooting draft, the draft that actually made it up onto the silver screen. And in that shooting draft, something new emerged. What was it? What could have been in this version of the script that made the movie feel different than the book? Because the book that I just described to you feels a lot more like it would get the musical treatment from Spielberg and Williams that we see in Jaws, the hubris of the island, Amity Island, (laughs) versus Isla Nublar, uh, motivated by money, ignoring the power of nature, with only Chief Brody slash Alan Grant and Matt Hooper slash Ellie Sadler and the crazy Captain Quint and the, and the charismatic Ian Malcolm having the real answers. Based on a novel about shark attacks by Peter Benchley slash based on a novel about dinosaur attacks by Michael Crichton. With so many similarities, you'd think that we would almost reflexively get a similar score to Jaws one that uses music to inspire dread and spatial perceptive function of the attacker versus the victim, the same way that Jaws did. One that, like Max Steiner's classic King Kong score from 1933, helped heighten the drama and fear with blaring brass and ominous minor chords. And while there are some examples of this clearly in Jurassic Park, especially towards the end of the movie, like the kitchen scene with the raptors, That is precisely not what Jurassic Park is remembered for at all, musically. In many ways, they seem to go out of their way to not do this with the music. Why? What was it that Spielberg and Williams were focused on? Why did they choose to score the movie in this way, the way that we're familiar with? 
And now for a brief intermission. And now, back to the soundtrack show. Third iteration. Details emerge more clearly as the fractal curve is redrawn. Ian Malcolm. Here's a quote from Spielberg that may shed some light on what the music in Jurassic Park may really be about. My first toy from a museum that I ever got was a little lead cast Triceratops. And I became fascinated as a kid, as all kids do, because I think they're bigger than us. And they were something that doesn't exist today. And I think because it doesn't exist today, and there's no immediate direct access, it becomes the thing that mythology is made of that makes mythology so fascinating. Well, Only it's real. It's not mythology. And I think it, even though it has, the, it has the, the pull and the seduction of mythology, it also has its roots in reality. It was very important to me to be a kid directing Jurassic Park, because I, like most kids, one of my first longest words was Triceratops, Stegosaurus. My dad would always take me to see the dinosaurs uh, in, in Philadelphia, the Franklin Institute of Technology. There was, a, there was a natural history museum there with big dinosaur bones. And so I made that movie really as a youngster, remembering how much fun it was to imagine with such yearning that someday wouldn't it be great to run into a dinosaur and meet up with one without being eaten by it. And I just remember making the movie with that philosophy for everybody that had ever wondered and been fascinated with that whole era of the dinosaur. I want to make a movie for all those dinosaur lovers. Dr. Grant, my idea, Dr. Sattler. Welcome to Jurassic Park. The most advanced amusement park in the entire world. What do they got in there, King Kong? We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they've captured the imagination of the entire planet. How'd you do this? I'll show you. Here's another quote, this time from my favorite soundtrack producer, Michael Matticino. From the liner notes of a 2016 four-disc set from La La Land Records called The John Williams Jurassic Park Collection. Quote, Spielberg's lifelong interest in dinosaurs, ah, there it is, lifelong interest, just like we heard in the clip, was revealed in the 1988 animated film The Land Before Time a joint Amblin-Lucasfilm production that spawned a series of direct-to-video sequels. The Rite of Spring sequence from 1940's Fantasia, which depicts the age of dinosaurs with timeless artistry, was an obvious influence. Traditional cell animation allowed for movement of the dinosaurs that could never be matched by live-action methods, no matter how much the technology was refined. End quote. So what we're starting to see here is a childlike wonder about dinosaurs from the director himself. A reverence that points us straight to the music that we heard at the top of this episode. But there's even more evidence of this to be found in the revised screenplay itself. The story, the movie itself. Here's another quote from Matt Ticino. Quote, one element of the novel that was amplified in Kep's screenplay is the theme of life finding a way, specifically the instinct to procreate. There was a general feeling, Kep said, 
that Grant and Ellie, played in the movie by Sam Neill and Laura Dern, respectively, weren't interesting enough personally, in the book, that is, and that we ought to think about how this experience, the the experience of going to the island, was going to affect them as people, not just as scientists. In the novel, Ellie is Alan's young intern. Cap made the pair closer in age and introduced a romantic relationship that is strained by Grant's reluctance to have children or even be around them. In the first scene, he threatens a child with a velociraptor claw, but when he sees the hatching of a baby raptor, he points to himself, hopefully, when Hammond says that the creatures imprint on the first person they see. We'll have to evolve too, Grant tells the children after the T-Rex attack forces him into the role of protector. Paternal instinct awakens and flourishes in a journey similar to Robin Williams' Peter Pan in Spielberg's previous film, Hook. End quote. From the beginning of the movie to the end, with the people and with the dinosaurs, the movie emphasizes the importance of life finding a way. From Dr. Grant figuring out how to preserve his life by tying two female seat buckles together on the helicopter. Do you remember this? It's a symbolic nod to the all-female population of the dinosaurs on the island finding a way. To the end scene on the helicopter when Grant has two children asleep in his arms, with Dr. Sadler, Laura Dern, looking at him with great affection. Life finds a way. So we come to realize then that Jurassic Park's core lesson of hubris is given this positive spin within the lives of our scientists. They're given a deeply personal character arc in the screenplay and in the movie, inspired by the awesome power of nature. And in this light, we now see that musically, the most defining scenes in the movie take place from the helicopter's journey to the island to when our scientists first see an herbivore sauropod eating branches out of the top of the tree. Spielberg and therefore John Williams, and therefore the score, identify with our main character's childlike wonder. Spielberg has the actors with their mouths agape one second, putting their head between their knees so they don't pass out in another second, and collapsing to the ground with tears in their eyes in another, and then finally laughing out loud with joy. That is the heart and soul of the motion picture Jurassic Park from 1993. But what's obvious to us in hindsight, I mean, hey, if you're a fan, you knew I was going to say all of that before I said it. What's obvious to us in hindsight isn't necessarily obvious to creators when they set out to make these works of art. This is the direction that they chose. Wonder, emotion, and the idea that we evolve as people, we grow. The cautionary tale is given a spin of hope. There's one more really big element that supports this line of thinking. Like Star Wars, Jurassic Park changed movie making forever. With the combined use of Stan Winston's advanced dino animatronics, mixed with a groundbreaking new technology from George Lucas's company Industrial Light and Magic called Computer Graphic Images, or CGI, the dinosaurs we saw on screen were like nothing the world had ever, ever scene. In 1993, as an audience, we were all convinced that now we knew what dinosaurs actually were like. It was the most convincing effect I had ever seen. A quick side story. I graduated high school in early June of 1993, 
Jurassic Park opened on June 11th, 1993. A bunch of old friends of mine and I all went to see Jurassic Park in Fairfield, California on opening weekend. I had no idea what the movie was even about. I was too wrapped up in my own just-graduated world. So I went into the movie cold. And sitting next to me was a childhood friend who I'd known since we were little. We'd never dated or anything, just friends for years. Let's say her name was Helen. The movie started. By the end of the movie, I had, I'm not even kidding you, I had claw marks in my forearm for how many times Helen jumped during the raptor sequence and grabbed onto me. We were jumping so much that I, that our friends and I were just giggling nervously the entire time. I mean, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. I thought the liquid metal Terminator from T2 was something. I mean, really something, two summers before. But this was next level. True story. When the T-Rex ate the lawyer, Gennaro, off of that toilet seat and shook him in the air, a theater patron two rows in front of us was jumping out of his chair and excitedly yelled, how the f*** did they do that, before being pulled down by his friends. It changed everything in movies. Suddenly, CGI was everywhere. Why am I telling you this story? Well, because there's a parallel between the wonder of Spielberg's childhood imagination and that of Grant and Ellie's. We were all experiencing that wonder. We were all seeing dinosaurs like that for the first time. Here's another brilliant quote from Matasino. Quote, The CGI effect continues to be what Jurassic Park is best known for, despite comprising just six and a half minutes of screen time. Perhaps that has something to do with the movie that the CG accompanies and the fact that the breakthrough was highly publicized at the time. Pre-internet and pre-cell phone audiences went to the picture collectively knowing that they were about to witness a technological breakthrough. It resonated because the story being told was about a technological breakthrough. He goes on to say this, quote, The moment in which the dinosaurs are revealed celebrates not only their fictional creation within the narrative, but the arrival of the technology to render them for the movie that we, the audience, are watching. Since Grant is introduced with the line, I hate computers, we accept that the sauropods he observes are the real thing. The line between fiction and reality is further blurred in the very next scene when the characters are seated in a small theater, in the rows in front of us, as it were, and we all together watch Hammond interact with a two-dimensional filmed version of himself. As the animated Mr. DNA short cleverly explains the scientific basics, the movie within a movie becomes the movie we are watching. And here's a last quote from Matasino. Quote, Later, when a hurricane approaches, Hammond mutters, Why didn't I build an Orlando? Jurassic Park is a clearly marked package. It is the most self-aware movie blockbuster ever made. Richard Corliss of Time Magazine spotted it, calling it a movie about all the complexities of fabricating entertainment in the microchip age. End quote. So perhaps the music is not just about the movie, but the spirit behind the making of the movie, the real-life story that led to this movie. Perhaps this is why Spielberg plays up the importance of the dinosaurs changing our main characters. Perhaps it's why he softened the Hammond character in the movie. In the book, Hammond was a megalomaniacal monster, but in the movie... Hammond is a misguided fool with a big heart for entertainment. Perhaps Spielberg can't help but relate to his enthusiasm, even if it is dangerous. 
The dinosaurs and their allure are just that powerful. And the results on the screen are too amazing to weigh down with dread. Instead, they should be celebrated. They should move us just as much as the filmmakers and the movie's fictional main characters are moved. Even John Williams was captivated by the dinosaurs when he saw the rough cut. Here he is talking to the Boston Globe, quote, The computer graphics are so beautiful. Never in your life have you seen what you're about to see. These creatures are so enormous. The texture and lighting of their skin, their movements, the integration with the live action. It is a staggering achievement. And to know that they aren't models but numbers in a computer blows my mind, which is a pre-computer mind. End quote. And now for a brief intermission. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. Chaos Theory. Fourth iteration. Inevitably, underlying instabilities begin to appear. Dr. Ian Malcolm. I want to get back to the music. We listened to the two big main themes of Jurassic Park earlier, and I want to break them down musically. Let's start with the island. Okay, the theme starts out with this opening fifth rising up. Just like the Star Wars main title, The Reign of the Dinosaurs, right? But then it jumps up a step and does it again. What's this? The same figure, only a step higher, later in the piece? To my ear, this is the prehistoric animal's resurrection, as they are once again brought to life. And they are beautiful. How do we know? Because we get a little bit of that animal magic that we have in the other theme. What I call the animal's theme. By jumping up to the tonic or key center that this theme is based around and then falling slightly, it is pulling at us emotionally with those traditional harmonies. Very rich, very melodic. But it is followed by a skewed melody, one that doesn't quite sit right. You see, up until this point, the melody has been very diatonic, meaning it all falls within a major scale. But then you get this borrowed note that just for a moment tells you something is out of place. Something's not right. We were here. And then suddenly it does this. Something's not right. You can't control nature. But then it's swept under the rug, and you get the whole thing again before you're swept into the B section. The B section is pure melodic bliss and adventure. This whole piece just seems to say to us that an island full of dinosaurs is awesome. It's everything you imagined it would be when you were a kid. But more. Well, more how? Well, we don't like to talk about it, but one of the dinosaurs might eat you, maim you, bite you, poison you, or pummel you to death. But we'll just gloss over that. Uh, never mind, it's fine. 
they opened Disneyland in 1956, nothing worked. Yeah, but John, if the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. I can't wait anymore. Now, I've saved the best for last, the animals theme. It rocks back and forth in a very traditional, lush way. And underneath it all, you have these extremely traditional but beautiful chords. These two chords are a one major and a four major. That is a major chord or a collection of notes built on the first note of a major scale. Then another major chord. Again, a chord is simply a collection of notes that sound good together this type of chord being classified as a major chord, that is built on the fourth note in a major scale. A quick reminder that in traditional Western harmony, we are always pulled back to the one chord, this, this chord here. The chord that the whole piece of music revolves around. Now, in the case of this piece, here is the one chord. How we get back to that chord from wherever we go in music, our direction back to settling again on that one chord is called a cadence. There are many different kinds of cadences. There are traditional cadences, you know, like... You know, there's more jazzy cadences, which are kind of like... But there's one you hear a lot in church... And it's called a plagal cadence, which is you'll have a four chord followed by a one chord. That's when you go back and forth between the four chord and then the one chord, such as at the end of a hymn when you get the amen. Amen. That sort of thing. Many people refer to that plagal cadence as the traditional amen cadence for this reason. Now, it's evolved since then, such as pop music back in the 50s when you would do a four chord, and then you follow it by a four minor chord, and then you would give us the, uh, the one there. But for the most part, this use of lush, slow, traditional one for one gives us this sense of reverence, this sense of ancient majesty a sense of worship. This is what John Williams employs to bring that emotion out of us, not to mention the choir that's in the music and the, the way that he orchestrates all of the players, the instrumentation. Here's a quote of John Williams talking about this music. What I recall about the introduction of the music associated with the animals is that the first time we, the humans see them, a woman and a man, I think, and we have a long shot of, of this creature which is actually very beautiful. What I try to do with the music is to give a sense of wonder and maybe even with a slight sense of religiosity in, in this way we would be acculturated to these harmonies and so on, so that the orchestra makes a beautiful statement that almost like you would enter a cathedral maybe.
So that was certainly clear in Stephen's interpretation of that thing. And I certainly remember that particular musical moment as being one that was an opportunity to, to do just that, to give a sense that these animals were magnificent. But as I've said before on the soundtrack show, great melodies work in multiple permutations. Here it is again as a lullaby. In this case, it kind of takes on a bit more of a twinkle, twinkle, little star type of melody for when the children are asleep, which, by the way, also uh, rocks back and forth between the one and the four chord. And later, at the end of the movie, we get this cue again, but it's more reflective. It's almost forgiving. John Williams delivers a highly emotional score that stands in very high contrast to the bloody Jaws or the terrifying moments that are found in both the book and movie Jurassic Park. But we'll get there. We have so much more to cover, including his use of DS Irae, the way he depicts technology, a theme for the predator dinosaurs, the T-Rex and the raptors, and various recurring musical ideas throughout the movie. We'll get to all of that. But today, I wanted to talk about what was most memorable in Jurassic Park, which is, in my opinion, and I know in the opinion of a lot of you listening, that emotion, that sentimentality, that, that feeling of, of just being overwhelmed by the beauty of the music next to the gorgeous visuals. By the way, Jurassic Park, the original, is so lush, 
you know, it's filmed in Kauai, Hawaii. The colors are vibrant and bright. The costuming is so bright. You know, you've you've just got this really beautiful, beautiful movie to look at. And the music really, really enhances that feeling. Not bad for a movie with so many scares in it that could very easily turn into a horror movie like that. I want to close by reading an email that I received from Jennifer. Here it is. She says, Hi, David. What a wonderful treat it has been listening to your podcast. I'm married to a musician who is a bandsman in the United States Army Band and am currently living in Germany. I've spent most of our married life surrounded by music and musicians. However, I have no gift for music or background in music. Listening to your podcast has been informative and beautifully inspiring. How great to feel like I am finally able to understand a small bit of the language of music. It has also really paved the way for some wonderful conversations with my husband and his co-workers. I feel as if I'm finally able to participate in music dialogue in a way I haven't ever really been able to. Discussing the Star Wars episodes has been a particularly wonderful experience. Thanks for putting so much passion and time into these episodes. Can't wait to hear more. Best wishes, Jennifer. Thanks so much for writing, Jennifer. And my hope for all of you listening to the show is that you get something out of it regardless of your musical training. Music is a part of our everyday lives, and I hope that we all become more comfortable in speaking about it because of this. I really appreciate all of you who take the time to write in and tell me about the show, give me suggestions, and for sharing your amazing stories. I read every single one and try to respond as much as I can. Please email us at the soundtrack show at howstuffworks.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundtrack Show HSW or on Twitter at Soundtrack HSW. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at David W. Collins. Thank you.